0: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar means ahead of the curve.
1: It's also perspectives. How does this particular
2: story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, casinos and the local economy, Marty Walsh's new climate change initiative, and is BYOB returning to Boston? Later in the show, the late literary giant and social critic, James Baldwin, is brought to life in a new documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. We'll talk to Raoul Peck, the director of the film, which was just nominated for an Academy Award. But first, joining me in the studio, Gen Dupchis, Statehouse reporter for Mass Live. Welcome, Gen. Hey, how are you? I'm glad to have you. Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell, and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Welcome back, Sue. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. <laughs> and Seth Daniels, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record, the Revere Journal, and the Charleston Patriot Bridge. Welcome, Seth. Glad to be here. All right. Let's start right off with this uh, casino story again, because the report from UMass Amherst is going against what I thought would happen, which is uh, open up a slot and it's going to take away from the uh, Massachusetts lottery. Not true.
0: Right. So the (laughs) UMass Amherst, they did a research paper they presented to the Gaming Commission recently, and they said, uh, so far... Lottery revenues, which are very important because that's a, a form of aid to cities and towns, it goes to municipalities, that has not been affected by Plain Ridge Park Casino. And, you know, this was a large part of the debate when we were talking about bringing casinos to Massachusetts. How would the impact, uh, how, what would the impact be on the lottery? Treasurer Deb Goldberg has pretty much been like suiting up for somewhat of a war here uh, because she oversees the lottery. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's not a good look for a treasurer in an elected position to see declining lottery revenues. But this research paper says, so far, so good. And, you know, whether that's the lottery trying to be more aggressive or the fact that Massachusetts is still in its infancy when it comes to expanded ga- gambling, that remains to be seen. But I think it's, it's a fascinating look at the early days of casinos coming to Massachusetts.
2: Well, what I think is interesting, Sue, is that they did, have the caveat that the result may not be indicative of what happens when casinos in Everett and Springfield open. because they're going to be larger and have mm-hmm. non-gambling amenities. Yeah, and
1: Plainville is not performing at the level that it had been projected to be performing at, which is the other part of it. So I think it's a very important benchmark. I think the studies have to keep going as this goes on. And I to Gin's point, I know that the lottery is just trying to become more aggressive, doing some trying to work in the online betting and gambling and all of that to make sure they have their pie. I'm always shocked at how how much gambling can exponentially grow and there doesn't seem to be an end to it. You know, I mean that we may end up ten years from now talking about this with all the casinos making money, maybe not making as much money as they had expected, and the lottery still
2: doing fine. People I guess like to gamble. Uh, well, yes they do. <laughs> Which I was about to say to Seth is that now again we should mention that Plain Ridge has been open uh since June 2015. So mm-hmm. that's enough time to time. really yeah. good, you know, get a good sense of it. I'm likely to play the lottery, you know, when the numbers are big, though someone usually has to guide me cuz I never get all the little things right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but whatever. But I would never go to the slot casino. So uh-huh. it, does that mean something, or is that just some anecdotal cockeye in this moment? Uh, we've had this.
3: <laughs> we've had this discussion in our newsroom a lot, especially with Everett having the casino and Revere vying for it. Um, you know, I don't think it's the same demographic or the same players. Number one, you have all these convenience stores. That's that's lottery haven. You've seen them probably. Yeah. There's like a, there's one in Dorchester. It's on the Street. It's like that is all that goes on there. There's one in Revere on Squire Road, which is like that's just what they do. And those. Uh, aren't really going to be um, people who go perhaps to the casino and want to play slots. It's almost like a community. They get together, they play the lottery, and they enjoy one another's company. I don't think it transfers. And they spend a lot of money, and this (laughs) happens all over the state. Casual players, maybe. But um, I don't know that it transfers. I think if you're playing the lottery, you're going to keep playing the lottery at your convenience store. You're not going to say, well, I'm just going to keep my money in my pocket and drive (laughs) over to Everett and go into this (laughs) five-star hotel and... Hang out with my friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kelly, <laughs> <you know? laughs> I'm
1: like you, but I also would go to a casino and not gamble. Well that's I mean, true. I love yeah. Las Vegas and yeah. I don't gamble. That's true. So I do that too. but I'll spend money there. Yeah. You know, so that's the I like a good stake. Uh, yep, something. and I sure. like to just people watch right. and buy some stuff. Right. You know, they certainly get money from me, but I'm I'm not gambling. Well yeah, that's well, that's, that's the point. business model too yeah. of the win mm-hmm.
3: casinos to get people in there for their commercial and retail stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So as long as they're not smoking in there, I'm I'm all in. But <laughs> yeah. see, that's what you, that's what has turned me off before yeah. Las Vegas sort of got a grip on yeah. that was you know controlling that smoking.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, I, I want to add too that uh, the Plain Ridge Park Casino has lottery machines on the uh, the floor. Oh, really? uh, they actually have, uh, I, I'm oh. not sure how many, maybe about seven or so, but they're actually spread out aclo- across the casino. And this was part of, uh, I guess, the negotiations that went into it is to have some lottery games uh, available. I went there a couple, of, uh, I think it was a month or so ago with my wife. We had some time to kill on a Saturday night. And the the mood there, I mean, to Sue's point, uh, you know, it, it was full... But it was kind of to quote the president, low energy. It was, it was not a, it was not a very. It um, wasn't bigly. It wasn't. Bigly. It was low energy. Um, but you know, it, it, but there were there were people there, and, and uh, you know the band was playing. But you know, uh, I will say we didn't we didn't win anything. Uh, we did we did hit the lottery uh, machine on the on the way out. So uh, and and still didn't win anything. So, oh, wow. but it but it is is one of those thing, fascinating things to look at because it opened with such fanfare and so much concern about uh, the lottery. That it's one of those things where it's like we're you know we're still kind of feeling our way out. And and the casino in in Everett is opening in twenty nineteen, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the one in Springfield is opening in twenty eighteen.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it could be a, another Massachusetts. Contrary situation where, you know, in other places we've seen a lot of these open up, well, they're full scale casinos and it just, you know, they sort of eat their own young. Mm -hmm. But this could be a situation where, you know, we've done a good job here with regard to the lottery and in delineating, as Seth says, these very different audiences. Mm -hmm. So... Hey, maybe yeah. they benefit. But I wouldn't go to the slot machine and play the lottery. You see? I, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. <laughs> Seth, I want to talk about this Cumberland Farms closure, sure. um, which, uh, you know, if you hear about a Cumberland Farms closing in a community, uh, necessarily might not get your attention. No. But this one is in Methadone Mile over in the South End. Sure. And it's a devastation for both the community and potential businesses in the area.
3: Yeah, definitely. It's... Mm-hmm. um. They closed in December and they didn't really say much about it late December, Um, but they came out with a a bit of a statement. Um, It's just, it's methadone mile or some people are calling it recovery road in hopes that it might be that. And and it is, it, it became sort of the corner. It's one of the few places, obviously there's a lot of addiction and homeless issues and a number of other issues all compounded right on that corner. And it, has 99 cent coffee (laughs) and it's open almost all the time so it became a congregation place and if you went by there at any particular time you'd see a group of people standing there who were really you know they were on the street addiction homelessness and they were just there and they got in the way of the customers there was a lot of violence a lot of issues and the high hopes that you know that that particular building was new somewhat new and they had high hopes of it being a real commercial center with the hospital there. And there was even talk of a movie theater a long time ago back there. Um, There were some other businesses. There was a a sort of a spa there that's gone for a long time.
2: Yeah, I remember that spa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. My wife loved it. Yeah, Yeah, I thought they were
3: doing well. Yeah, it's not there. And, and, uh, you know, the Dunkin' Donuts that's there, Yeah, it's sort of like you have to go up to the window and, you know? Yeah, it's like the, the only <laughs>
1: underperforming Dunkin' Donuts yeah. I think in the entire world. And it's, it's true. Yeah, and oh. yeah, I mean, and yeah. Donuts.
3: Hmm. Yeah, it's mm. it's it's you know, I mean, it's also you can get a dollar twenty nine, you get a, a coffee there and hang out all day, and and I see. people overdose in the bathrooms. It's that's a problem everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. So what happened was Cumberland Farms pulled out, and you know, there's some restaurants there, there's a couple of hotels, they're all having the same problem. Mm-hmm. The worry is that um, as the problem gets worse, because it is getting worse, mm. that everybody's going to pull out mm-hmm. because yeah. it isn't safe. And if you think about a hotel, if you've come in from right. who knows where and you say, hey, look at this hotel, you know, it's pretty close to, it's on Mass Ave, yeah. isn't that where the symphony is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there's and two hotels out, uh, there. There's there's yeah. the yeah. Roundhouse and yes. the, and the exactly. Great uh,
1: Western, I think. That and was Hampton Inn. Hampton Inn, you're yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And when the weather gets better and you see tourists or folks there for hospitals too, mm-hmm. and yes. you just see them crossing the street, uh, Melnia Cass in Mass Ave, mm-hmm. and the horrified looks on their faces. Mm-hmm. you know. And obviously, a lot of the folks on this, this area are coming in the morning. Some of them aren't Boston residents. Mm-mm. Some of them aren't homeless. Some of them are coming in the morning for their methadone treatments, mm-hmm. spending the day when the weather is okay, either congregating or panhandling, and then they get their methadone treatment at the end of the day and they go home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the mayor has asked for... A certain amount of time to try and solve this problem but at the same time you've got these businesses that invested in being in yeah. this part of town yeah. you know this was going to be the new part of town that, mm-hmm. and it, it's just not working out for the businesses and it's certainly not good for the people who are panhandling and are homeless and
3: yeah i mean it became sort of like the face of it even the mayor at a at a conversation meeting with the community, he used it as, as, as sort of a caricature. You know, it's like the guys with their hat backwards and clean mm. sneakers and a backpack standing in front of Cumberland Farms. Mm. <laughs> that's I'm sure they very the much appreciated thing. that. No, they probably yeah. didn't. That's what I'm. I, I meant <laughs> I <know>. that facetiously. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs>
2: that's my guest, uh, Seth Daniels, and before you heard Sue O'Connell, Again, you wanted to say something?
0: Yeah, I, I, I for, forgive my ignorance. Are, are there any sort of government services in that area, or yeah. sort of aside ass- yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean that's the con- that's that's the solution. Problem is that. People are coming there for services. It's also where they can get a bus to um, Pine Street Inn. Mm-hmm. It's well, all shelters. There's, and there's uh, the day workers gather there to get picked up. So it's a congregation of both services and need. And, you know, the other challenge is that dealers go there to take yes. advantage mm-hmm. of people who are trying to be in recovery. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a heartbreaking moment in the another Mass Ave Dunkin' Donuts where a young woman was in there with her mother. Her mother had they had just gotten their methadone treatment. The mother was nodding off, you know, standing in line, falling over. The girl was crying. It was just horrible, mm. you know, and it's heartbreaking for everyone there, and from, you know, as Seth said, the businesses are, are just trying to be businesses, right. you know. Right. Well,
0: and, and, and I wonder if, if there's a different way for government to be doing things in that in that area, because I think when you see government step in and invest in something, that stabilizes businesses, and it draws businesses in, and I feel, I know it's easy for me to say, you know, there's got to be a way, but I, I feel like if everybody puts their head together, especially mm-hmm. someone like Mayor Walsh, who who has dealt with these issues, when even when he was a state rep, there might be a, a way to, to to, to help the user experience across the board for, for folks who are coming for the services for the businesses and people tourists who are who are passing through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well
2: out. the other thing Seth is you
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I talked some time ago about this Worcester Square Neighborhood Association being concerned about some of the folks, you know, homeless people using their doorsteps for bathrooms. Yes. And um, we're <laughs> and talking, the needles. In the needles. Right. Needles, right. You and know? so we're talking about, you know, really, really expensive homes. So we're in that sort of change situation in the neighborhood, yet people want services. And as the people in the neighborhood association made clear, they understand, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going Mm -hmm. on with the people. They don't want to be the meanies. Right. But they're also trying to take care of their property as well. Yeah. 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 Well,
3: one thing, um, the the moderator of the South End Forum, Steve Fox, in in our story there, he said it's time for the city to consider some of there's a lot of vacant land over there. It's sort Mm -hmm. of a no man's land in a lot of ways. Um, and he said it's time to start looking at that for using linkage funds that the city has and mm-hmm. building wraparound services like home. You know, this mm-hmm. is like an apartment building with 24-7 type services to make sure people are on, you know, are on the right path. You mm-hmm. know, and that that does prove to work, the whole thing about wraparound on-demand services. Right. Um, that's the answer. He says, "Let's put it right there."
2: So, what can the neighborhood association do? Because obviously, it doesn't serve them well either Mm. to have a Cumberland Farms or anybody else leave.
3: Some of them in the Worcester Square area think it it could be a good thing. There's ideas that there'll be more medical offices there, which wouldn't draw a crowd. But then again, then people are going to go somewhere. If they're not there, they're going to be somewhere else.
1: And it's always been an area for panhandling. Always. I mean, that that, yeah, that that regardless of. Who's there? It's a very high traffic area. You've got the, the 93 Expressway feed off. Mm-hmm. You've got Mass Ave. You've got yeah. M- Milniakask Boulevard. You've yeah. got Fenway Park. Folks go in there. So it's always going to be a, a place where people are going to want to beg. So,
2: mm-hmm. all right. Well, we'll see. Uh, that's my guest, Sue O'Connell of The Take with Sue O'Connell on NECN and also co publisher of Bay Windows in the South End News. So you know this neighborhood really well. Uh, Sue, you've been writing about climate ready Boston mm-hmm. in the South End and how. Um, The city of Boston really has some very focused and detailed initiatives ready to take place. This was an effort funded by the Barr Foundation. I'm wondering how all this works with our one-week-old presidency, um, <laughs> who administration doesn't appear to be in favor of anything named No, no. Change. I mean,
3: this
1: is just something I know that Mayor Marty Walsh and, and Mayor Menino before him had started. They are taking very seriously, especially after the Sandy storm, Hurricane Sandy, yeah. where the most vulnerable areas in Boston are. And some of them you don't even think of, you know, and, and East Cambridge is obviously not Boston, but East Cambridge is one of them, right? You don't think uh-huh. of that as waterfront right. property. But if the, the flood goes up one or two or three inches, the water will go flooding from uh, Charles River into Cambridge as well. So they've taken these studies very, very seriously from the past five years or so. And what they're doing is involving all the neighborhoods sharing the information about where the flood zones are and what potentially could happen with the storm and what will most necessarily certainly happen within 100 years or so. When we had the King Moon a couple of months ago and you saw the water just completely over the Marriott Hotel Mm -hmm. down on the the waterfront, those are things that are definitely going to happen. So what Mayor Walsh and the plan are doing is just working at ways to be environmentally friendly, make people aware, and, you know, we're really getting very close. We're just about 20 years away from talking about how we relocate people who mm-hmm. live in Boston because it's it's not going to be tenable for, for people to live in places where the water won't be stopped. And um, this is something Mayor Walsh also campaigned on. He talked about all the building codes and working on codes so that you don't have all the— all the mechanics in the basement. You might have it on the roof, so if something happens and when something happens, the building can still be used. But it's online. It is very, very comprehensive and talks very frankly about the challenges that Boston and a lot of the seaside east coast towns have, cities have, and challenges with the the, the sea level's rising. One of the things that has happened in the Arctic, which is affecting us more than other places, is that the warm water is melting the Arctic ice from below, hmm. and the air is melting it from above. And it is causing it to shear and melt quicker, and that water comes right down because of the way the tides and all that stuff happened in the ocean coming right into New England. So when we talk about uh, sea level rise, we're not talking about a bathtub that goes, as, goes up mm-hmm. equally. You know, some places might just get a little, some places might get more. And unfortunately for New England, we're, we're in the spot that uh, in a 100, 200 year
0: preview, we're going to get a lot of water.
2: Again, is there political will to support this?
0: At the city level, yes. I think. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing that struck me about uh, this, too, is that uh, of doing this planning and saving this research, it's becoming more and more important because we don't know if that information is going to be available at the federal level. Mm-hmm. That might strike something, you know, some folks as, as drastic, but I think it's an imperative on folks who are, if you're very passionate about an issue, start stockpiling the data because we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know if it's going to be available. And having stuff like this at the city level at the state level, uh, is going to become more and more important over the next couple of years.
2: Seth, what do you think?
3: Well, I, I, I recall a, uh, they had a contest a couple of years ago for architects in Boston to just, they, they put oh, out they mm-hmm. Morrissey mm-hmm. Boulevard, mm-hmm. they put one, there was a, a condo building in the north end, I think, on North Washington Street, and, and they said, well, what can you do? Let's pretend this is 100 years from now in the, the model, the, you know, the, the most liberal model, which would be you know, the water at the highest level. What can we do? with these existing places. Morrissey Boulevard was one, and if you've ever been on that in Dorchester, it's like <laughs> a underwater frequently. And it, of course, it's all yeah. filled in. It's not Stard- real yeah. land. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this stuff wasn't there mm-hmm. um, at one point. They came up with some really good ideas, and maybe um, I think that informed a lot the report that mm-hmm. came out. And architects, I think, can contribute a lot, you know, thinking ahead when they design some of these buildings. And as Sue mentioned, um, putting the, the mechanicals higher and, and that's just that's just a smart thing to do. And um, there's there's also uh, the thing they did on North Washington Street was they were anticipating no more North Washington Street. <laughs> well, yeah. So they're thinking about and, and they were thinking about um, you know building like uh, amphitheaters. It's like a park, you know, and it goes out to the building, and underneath the park is. At a much higher level, the mechanical stuff, though, mm-hmm. the electricity and things like that. Yeah, so. so I think there are a lot of answers in how we design buildings. It's, it's a smart way of doing things. And, you know, I mean, the flood insurance is a whole other oh, issue that's, that, yeah. That, yeah, well,
2: that we're, yeah, talking, now about, we're and, really cool. talking about. And that's my yeah. guest, Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group. I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, author Rory Flynn, who I had on my yep. book club, whose uh, series, he's writing a series of uh, mysteries, so I know people are saying, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> he imagines what happens if the South End is flooded. Mm-hmm. It's really extremely well done, scary, and you realize how all these points that you're accustomed to can go away in right, like one right, second. Right, You
1: know what, uh, I, what <laughs> amazes me the most about this whole situation is a bunch of scientists that work for a place called General Electric (GE) <laughs> just put their headquarters at the oh, place right. that is definitely going to be underwater <laughs> in about 50 years.
2: Well, and, and they will <laughs> that's tell why you they want the helipad. They will tell you that uh, <laughs> they're all about the science and looking forward. So, hey, maybe we're glad they're there because they're working oh, I'm on glad it. They're, there. they're working on it. I really, just want to see
1: what their lease looks like because yeah. if it's 60 years,
2: <laughs> they're going to be in trouble. <laughs> I, I'm going to guess they're going to figure that out. Yeah. Let me move on again. We all want to have a little glass of wine. So <laughs> finally, Boston's approving these bring your own, own bottle rules. Tell us why this is so meaningful. I think I know, but help me.
0: <laughs> well, it's huge for for a couple of different reasons. Now, now the rules still prohibit it in downtown Boston. This is this is mostly for the outer lying neighborhoods. And, and by uh, that you
2: mean Alston, Brighton, Charleston, Dorchester, East Boston, Hyde Park, Jamaica Plain. I want people to know where they can mm-hmm. go. Mattapan, Mission Hill, <laughs> Roslindale, Roxbury, South Boston and West Roxbury. I note Cambridge is not in that but continue.
0: Yeah. So it's—the um, reason it's important is because a lot of the, these neighbors neighborhoods have great restaurants. But it's tough to get folks out there. And the other factor is liquor licenses are still incredibly expensive. So if you look at the downtown Boston restaurants, they can afford to buy one. They can afford to acquire a liquor license for smaller restaurants, ethnic restaurants, uh, mom-and-pop restaurants. They can use BYOB permit as kind of like a way to start out a concept or to just draw people in in the evening. And that's when it's going to be available in the evening. And it'll draw people in the neighborhoods. It'll activate these spaces. Uh, Michelle Wu, uh, the president of the Boston City Council, she and Ayanna Pressley, uh counselor at large, have been uh, pushing this. And they really view it as an economic development package, package for neighborhoods outside of uh, Boston proper.
2: But what I think is interesting, Seth, is that Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple restrictions in here that people should know, both. I think beneficial one. Once you bring your bottle in, wherever you're bringing it in, or your bottles, you mm-hmm. cannot go out for more. Say, hey, let's have another round and go down to <laughs> no. you know right, right. Gordon's Liquors <laughs> and get you another bottle. No, no, no. Fair you enough. have to do. It's only what you brought in. So that's the first thing. Yes. But here's what I think is really interesting: is that they can't levy a surcharge as yeah. they do sometimes in hotels. If you bring yeah, yeah. in your own liquor, then they charge you a fee yeah. for corking it, corking, uncorking yeah. it. So to me, that's taken out the legs of a couple of problems.
3: Yeah, that yeah. was under that was what slowed this down a lot. They mm. debated that over and over and over. The rest, A lot of the restaurant owners wanted that. They are performing a service, they argued. I think there was a hearing or two, at least, where they went back and forth on that. And that really slowed things down, I can recall. And they worked it out to where it's probably better for the customer. You can, you can bring it in. That, that encourages you to do it. But one thing about it is it sounds really great. But when we started looking around, like in Charlestown, which mm-hmm. desperately needs places to eat, and um, when you have a restaurant, you desperately need to serve alcohol in mm-hmm. some fashion. Mm-hmm. There really weren't any places. Most places already had some sort of beer, wine, or alcohol. Oh,
2: that's interesting. And and by the way, we should say it's only beer and wine.
3: Yes, yeah. This is only beer and wine. Right. Yeah. yeah. These licenses. Yeah, are beer and you and wine. can't you can't have a beer and wine license and then also have a BOIOB. It's, right. Yeah, so. Right. So the, um, that we were looking around. There aren't any establishments, really. There's only, like, maybe one. Interesting. You know, so, so the other idea is that maybe this is going to encourage some of the in-between, like, pizza shops that have mm. some sit-down to maybe invest a little more and have wait service mm. and take it up a notch. Who knows? That's kind of the idea we were thinking of. But um, I, I'd be interested to see how many places this is actually going to help because you have to have you have to wait service. Mm-hmm. Can't be, oh. It can't go up to the counter in order and— Take your. Uh, well,
2: why do you have to have wait service? Help me with that. Of, because if you bring your. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the deal. It's part of the rule. Yeah. Oh, okay. What is it? It's
3: 30 seats? Yes, have, I know yes. you have to have 30
2: yeah. seats, but I didn't realize you had to have a yeah. wait service and because weight service, yeah. I can tell people right now if anybody listens to this show, um, they know that the markup on the wines and mm-hmm. restaurants mm-hmm. is huge. Sure. So you know, I would be bringing in my South African mm-hmm. wines a good for deal. a yeah. good, you know. But nine, that's, ten also, that's
1: also that's <laughs> also where they make most of their profit. So that's the double-edged sword here. Is if if you know they're not allowed or if they don't sell beer and wine via their license, then their profit margin goes down too. Mm-hmm. So
2: it's a it's a balance. Well I would then eat dessert. <laughs>
1: see.
3: <laughs> so you
2: know if I'm not paying for extra for cause sometimes I go. just yeah, refuse. That's true, though. I right. refuse to pay because yeah. I know how much it costs in yeah. the store and I'm just not going to spend that for yeah. one glass. Right. Okay.
1: I'm just not. You don't want to um, spend eighteen dollars for it I, when you can get a boss. You know, I have done it but d- yeah. but
2: sometimes I'm just not going to do yeah. it, particularly when I know exactly how much it costs. Yeah. And if you buy a so, drink
3: maybe you're not going to buy dessert. When right. So trigger. this way
2: I would dessert, which, you know, I don't need to buy, but I probably (laughs) would. But in any case, moving on. So this seems to be the opposite end. This is a roten control. (laughs) You know, Seth, you just have the most uplifting (laughs) story. I just have to say. I can hardly even read this because I'm so scared of mice and, and rats. But do explain how uh, dry ice is now perhaps a pesticide? Yeah, this, this <laughs> is
3: a story by uh, one of our reporters, Beth Trefeason. And she uh, had found out, you know, the rat population, number one, is is really growing in Boston, but everywhere else, too. And some of our warm winters have contributed to that, I think. And so they begin using, Boston ISD begin using um, dry ice. It's pretty simple, right? You yeah. throw it down the hole. You know, they burrow into the, there. You throw it in the hole. They go in. The dry ice releases, and they, they, they choke to death. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just don't want to find them after. Yeah, well, very nice. So, yeah. so dry,
3: dry ice is yeah. obviously, you know, you don't want to touch it. It's not good for the skin, but it's not poisonous. It's not like pesticides or, or right. rat poison or something like that. So they begin using it. It was very effective. And then the Department of Agriculture, the state, um, stepped in and said, "Oh, you can't do that. You're using a pesticide." And, and they're like, "No, no, we're not. <laughs> it's dry ice." Well, apparently, if you use anything, you might use <laughs> right. has to go through first the EPA. Then the State Department of Agriculture. Even if you, it really isn't a pesticide, but if you're using it as a pesticide, then it is. <laughs> so, wow! Talk about bureaucracy and red that tape.
2: That's a good one. Wow! So
3: it's on hold. So dry ice in Boston is on hold until. But meantime,
2: population's growing. Oh right?
3: yeah! I mean, I was red just at a, we talked about Worcester Square. I was just at a meeting there this week where they were talking about um, a vacant lot where there is a colony <laughs> that has uh, arisen and probably thousands of rats living in this vacant lot. And they're, they find food at the trash cans, but at the restaurants, they have water, they're, they're living the life. And meanwhile, you know, here's an effective thing, but because of red tape, they're not able to use that. Right. Now.
1: Okay,
2: so somebody's got to be moving on this, right? <laughs> this makes no sense.
1: Listen, the, the other problem with catching rats and rodents in the city is that the rodents are smart.
2: Very. Right?
1: Yeah. So, a couple of years ago, the peanut butter was all the rage. Remember they had this this they I mean, oh, this right. is like a full-time people spend a lot of time and then once the rats figured out that the peanut butter wasn't wasn't helping them. They all stopped eating the peanut butter and then we had to find something yeah, <laughs> else oh to catch God. them. So it's it's a 24-hour job trying to and and the construction, the warm weather yes. is definitely yeah. they're breeding more. They're not they don't hibernate per se, but they they're less active when it's cold and obviously and in the winter. And all this pile driving and everything that's going on just keeps them active and moving mm. in all this great restaurant business. So what? I'm gonna get a bow and arrow, and I'm just gonna go. <laughs> uh, uh. I mean, it seems. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> oh my god! That, that just hit send, me. <laughs> send the letters to Sue O'Connell
2: of the Take with Sue O'Connell. Um, again, it seems to me that we're gonna to have to. It doesn't sound nice, but we're going to, if but if we have an opportunity to use something, I realize as a pesticide, but is not a pesticide. We we got to do something about this because this is taken over. Rodent activity complaints. Up from 2,170 mm-hmm. in 2015 is now 3,133, and that's how right. much. That's that's for people who have complained. It's probably other people who haven't said anything.
0: Right, and, you know? and I think I think uh, Seth noted in the story that some of that might be just the ease of the complaint process mm-hmm. now. Is yeah. is you can yeah. you can just click on the phone, you see a rat, and and you make the you file a report with the city. I think this is kind of a quirky example of government trying to innovate. <laughs> and, yeah. and you got Uber, you got Lyft. Uh, they're trying to innovate and regulate those food trucks. And here you are, they're trying to kill rats in do ways. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that's not going to go away. Uh, might as well keep trying things out. Um,
1: Maybe they could have a rock concert in Worcester Square and <laughs> use the dry ice as an effect. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: I'm going to say is there, there's some politician that can use this issue to uh, his or her benefit by getting this undoing this red tape mm-hmm. so right. this rat population goes down. Because the the back to the climate change, we got warmer weather. I'm happy about it, but that's mm-hmm. we bring these people. So are up. the rats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sue O'Connell. Okay. Um we're back and forth around this Winthrop Square oh, skyscraper, yeah. the same people, the Millennium Tower people. And now Boston Logan is mad about it. I mean, it used to be just the issue was the shadow over the the Boston Common. Yeah, Boston Common and Boston
1: Public Garden. uh, The mayor is uh, looking like he's offering them a waiver so they can build it. I mean, just to back up for a second, this Winthrop Square garage, which is terrible and we all want something to happen. This would be the second... Largest building just below the Hancock, uh, if completed, the mm-hmm. tower. And all the companies that bid for this bid had no idea there was a restriction <laughs> on how tall it could be. And wow. all the bids were above the restriction. So I don't and why know. Why doesn't somebody tell them I don't know the how way? this happened. <laughs> okay. I, all right. Okay. So they didn't yeah. know. Apparently the uh, BRA didn't know. I can't even Nobody wrap knows. my brain around that. Okay. okay. So but the, the new challenge is the FAA has to approve a building of this size, regardless of where it's going to be in the city, because it's, or, I mean, on the, the flight path over the city. So it's part of just a regular thing that happens when buildings get this big. It will take six to eight months for it to be reviewed and probably approved. I don't think that's going to be a challenge. But the millennial folk are still working hard to convince the people in the Public Garden, the Friends of the Boston Public Garden and the Common, that the shadow that they project won't be on the common and garden that long on an average day is not that bad. The bigger problem that people see is the shadow creep. If there's a waiver on this 20-year-old law that allows this building to put more shadow than what's going to keep somebody else from saying, or them again, Mm -hmm. we're going to build another big building and we want the waiver again. Uh, People's Mm -hmm. point to New York City and how there are all these really, really big buildings around the public spaces... That are empty because they're bought as investments by foreign investors, and, casting yeah. shadow on people using the free public space in New York City. So that's what they don't want to happen in Boston.
2: Well, it's not also, and by the way, I just want to correct one thing. You said millennial. Oh, you right, know, we blame right. a lot on the millennials. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but right, this right. is millennium, millennium partners. I'm going to blame. Let's blame right. properly. Um. The millennials, thank you. I <laughs> yes, <this>. Thank <laughs> there you. you go. Um, but the Logan Airport thing is very interesting. The Massport official is saying that it's going to interfere with operations at Logan in addition to the shadowing. Uh, now, that's going to get a lot of people's tackles up. You I'm know. told,
1: though, that that's just what they say, you Uh-oh. know, that they're just looking at it. And, and that well, you okay. know, it, it doesn't necessarily it, it'll go through the process and everyone a, any building would it go through the process. And that's what they say. Anything that tall mm-hmm. is going to interfere <laughs> So they have to come up with a plan around it. Maybe the FAA should be a little bit more concerned about the flight paths over in the South End. You got it. And no kidding. Uh, attend a couple of meetings. That might be more important.
2: Well, that probably is going to happen. But uh, mm. this thing is not—this This is going to be a big fight, and I don't see it coming to an end unless you two have something to add to that. It's just, just going to be a fight for a while, right? Well,
0: the other thing, too, yeah. is that there are so many people and so many agencies involved. Everybody's going to want their peace, right? Right. And everybody's, everybody's looking for a little bit of leverage, say, like, well, you know, I'll— Give up this if you mm-hmm. give me that, yeah. and, and that's part of the part of the reason this kind of this kind of thing drags on, yeah. and and it's just it's going to keep going for a while.
3: I, I wonder too. There's been other projects. There's Project 171 Tremont Street, which was approved last October, um, and it's and, tall. Well, it was proposed at 300 feet plus, mm-hmm. and the same neighbors were very upset by it. Went on for a couple of years, and they lowered it. It was approved at 175 feet because they couldn't do the shadow thing. Mm-hmm. So now you wonder. Are they going to say, "Hey, <laughs> what yeah. about us here? We yeah. we really we went from like 33 boutique uh, loft units to I think it was 12."
1: Mm. Well, the difference mm. with this too, and I, I can't remember if that was city property, but this tower is on city-owned mm-hmm. property. Yeah, yeah this so, was not city yeah, property. So yeah, so so the city has a lot more
2: say over what goes on it than um, having to deal with the mm. usual groups. All I can say is that it takes Boston to be unique enough to have a shadow bank. <laughs> I, I never heard of that. Yes. Yeah, so Where like, I come from, yeah, we don't have a shadow bank. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was actually Byron
1: Rushing that yeah. that looked at it and said we can't have these buildings just casting shadow on yeah. our beautiful
2: park in common. No, in I agree. Happen. It's so. just it's so interesting. Well, anyway, we'll end a note on an ongoing issue because as uh, Ginn has already said, somebody's already trying to figure out how to get a little piece of that action. So we'll be back to this at some point the next time I see you all. <laughs> in the meantime, I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Right. Thank you, you. Ginn is a State House reporter for Mass Live. Sue O'Connell is the host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows in the South End News. And Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group. Coming up, in his day, James Baldwin debated conservative William S. Buckley, was on the cover of Time Magazine, and challenged America's relationship with its black citizens through provocative social critique. Now his words are given new life in the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. We talk with the film's director, Raul Peck, next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, I'm Callie Crossley.